So we left off last time. Romans 15, we got down to about verse 28. So just to get our thoughts together, Paul here is telling Rome, the church at Rome, I've desired to come and be with you for, for years. I've desired to come, and, and Rome's a pretty good journey from Israel and the surrounding area. But Paul says, I, I've been hindered from doing that because of the ministry that God has given me to perform here. I've been laboring to get the gospel through Asia and uh, south of Israel and been laboring to spread the word where God's not been named. So Paul's desire was that all the cities and villages in the area that had not heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that he would go there and preach them the gospel, that they would hear. Remembering the... Uh, the I'm trying to think of the official name and I can't think of it right now. But as the Great Commission, that's it. As the Lord Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, He tells His apostles, now go and preach this gospel to every tongue, every nation, uh, and all kindred throughout the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe that's what the apostles are trying to do. They're trying to get this gospel out to the world. They're not huddled up and hiding in the church at Jerusalem. They're not all there together uh, hiding from the outside world and trying to cover up this. But they're going out and spreading the gospel. And through the work of the gospel now, God's drawing and saving people and establishing churches round about. But Paul says, I've fulfilled that ministry. I've preached the gospel, uh, and I, I can't think of the cities right off the bat, but he's preached the gospel in the area, and now he's ready to go to Rome. And his idea, his thought is, I want to get to Spain. Spain being the end of the European uh, peninsula there, and what they would have called in that day the ends of the world. So he's trying to reach as, as far as he can go. He says, on my way to Spain, I'm going to stop by Rome and I hope for you to help me along the way. And so he says, but first, I've got this collection. So we can kind of date when this happened, when Paul wrote this. Paul is going to gather a collection, an offering from Gentile churches. He's going to bring it to the church at Jerusalem. You remember they sold everything they had. They put all their money in a pot and they lived together off of that, thinking the Lord was coming back soon. And, and I believe this also, not realizing the persecution that was going to come because of their faith and because of their profession. They're going to be cut out of the economy. They're going to lose their jobs. They're not going to be allowed to shop at the marketplace. They're going to suffer great economic persecution along with the physical the beatings and, and the martyrings that's going to occur, but all because of the faith and the profession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you sell everything you've got, you lose your job, you've got a pot of money, and, and that's, that's going to run out eventually. You ain't going to live on that forever. So the saints at Jerusalem, they're, they're in pitiful shape, naturally speaking. So Paul's taking this collection of the Gentile churches. He's going to bring that and offer that to the saints at Jerusalem. And he says, when I, when I do that work, when I deliver that and give that to them there, then 
I'm going to head that way and come to Rome. So listen now. In verse number 28, And when therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. So Paul says, when, when I've delivered this offering to the people at Jerusalem, then, and notice how it says here, and sealed to them this fruit. And I, I said this last time, but it's highlighting there the strife between the Jew and the Gentile that still existed. And honest, we just don't know how great that strife was in the day that we're in, even in the midst of the church. So Paul says, I'm going to deliver this unto them and seal to the Gentiles this fruit that that the Jews might recognize these are people of like faith. They've got our good in mind and really we ought to accept them as they are. And yet, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. What was Paul hoping to bring to Rome? The fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. So fullness, that's pleroma. That's that repletion. It's filled plumb to the brim. Fullness of blessing. Blessing that's completely full and that comes from the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can Paul be a help to the Roman church? The preaching, the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in Romans 1, you remember, as we flip back for just a second, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. If I come to Rome, I'm going to preach the gospel to Rome. If I go to Corinth, I'm going to preach the gospel. If I go to Galatia, I'm going to preach the gospel. Why would would you be so concerned about preaching the gospel and not be ashamed of that? I mean, Paul's going to go and stand at Mars Hill where all of the philosophers and all of the highly educated men where they're at and where they get together to think and you know the God's truth, you put us there and we're going to be ashamed of this. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of it because I recognize this, that if anybody's going to be saved, it's going to be by the proclamation of this gospel. So I'm not going to be disgraced and I'm not going to withhold myself because I know that this gospel is the power of God unto salvation. If man's coming to salvation... By the power of God, the operation will take place through the gospel. So the the gospel then is the means of revelation. God reveals the hidden mysteries. And when you see that word hidden or mystery in the New Testament, a lot of times it's a secret with the idea of imposed silence. It's not that Paul is revealing something new. 
But Paul is preaching that that's been hidden, that God has hidden from the eyes and the mind of man. Though he gave Daniel a a vision and a view, really through the lattice work as the Old Testament is, Daniel saw a vision of a king. He saw a vision of a conqueror. He saw a vision of a kingdom that would last for eternity. But when he prayed and said, God, what, what does this mean? God said, Daniel, seal it up. It's a mystery. I'm not going to reveal anymore to you. God imposed silence and kept much of this gospel hidden from man. And so the Jew who had the Old Testament, they could look at Isaiah. But honest, before Christ came and before He accomplished His work and before the New Testament was written, I believe all of mankind looked at Isaiah 53 just like the Ethiopian did and said, who is this man talking about? Who is this Scripture referring to? Is he writing about himself or is he talking about somebody else? Is this something that's going to happen? I I see what he's saying, but I don't understand that. And the Gospel preached by Philip uncovered the mystery and he could see that Jesus Christ was the message of the Old Testament. And that's what the Gospel does. He reveals the things that have been hidden all really since Adam and Eve. God told the serpent from the seed of a woman is going to come one. In the next chapter, Eve brings forth a son names him Cain, and she rejoices and says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Now it's not implicitly stated there, but it looks like she expected Cain to be the one that God had just promised. She didn't understand. It was hidden to her. But there was hope. There was looking for a deliverer. And so now in the gospel, what was hidden is uncovered. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the illumination, not just an uncovering that's open now for me to look at, but illuminating me. Uh, even though it would be done, you know, Paul preached to Felix. Felix or Agrippa or Festus. One of those men, I believe it was Agrippa. Paul said, these things were not done in a corner. This wasn't done hidden away somewhere, but all of Jerusalem and all of the country knows what happened here when the Lord Jesus was crucified. This was the news of the day that the kings and the governors and today we would say the House of Representatives and the Senate and the the, the Supreme Court and the President, they were all aware in that day of this man Jesus and what went on down at Jerusalem wasn't done in a corner. And yet, still the multitude were in darkness as to who this man was. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So even though he'd done all of the works, he'd done even to the raising of the dead, and the healing of the men that was born blind, and the walking of the lame, yet man still could not understand who he was, and they crucified him. Well, the gospel not only reveals, but illuminates. It opens our understanding, really, that that's been in captivity 
to the devil is now opened up through the preaching of the gospel. He says in Ephesians 1, "...in whom ye also trusted, after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation." So this gospel came to man, it revealed Jesus Christ, and it went farther than just revealing in a, a ceremony type, but He reached even into the heart of man and regenerated and illuminated the very thinking of man all through the working of the Holy Ghost through the gospel. And this same gospel, this same revelation of truth, not only reveals and illuminates, but those that believe are established in the truth. So that every wind of doctrine and the slight of men's hands and how, how good the deceiver is at deceiving. How good that he is at at showing us something that's untrue and convincing man of that. But them that are saved by the preaching of the gospel, by the leadership of the Spirit in their life, they can be established on the truth and the very best deceiver can't lead them astray. They know the truth. They're established on it. So what's Paul going to do when he comes to Rome? He's going to preach them the gospel. And if there's people there in darkness, the gospel has the power that they need to be saved. If there's people in the church that are weak, there's power in the gospel to strengthen and establish them. The gospel, the great gift of God to perform His work in the heart and in the mind of the church. So let's look now in verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit. Now, I I realize how that sounds, but if you look up those words, it's not exactly as what we think that that means. That sake, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, that word is through or channel of an act. That's the meaning of that word. So he's not saying, for Jesus Christ's sake, I want you to do this. But the picture is through the Lord Jesus, I want you to do this. So let's keep that in mind. For the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So Paul's asking the church to pray. Paul does, And we could look... We could look at several letters. Paul's always asking, pray for me. Pray for us. I pray, I'm praying for you. Remember me when you pray. And now Paul's going to ask the church at Rome, I beseech you through the Lord Jesus and through the love of the Spirit. The word for and the word sake. That's the same word through the channel of an act. So how is the church coming to God in prayer? They're coming through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit of God. That is the means that God has given to the church in order to approach the throne room of God in prayer. Without the blood of Jesus, we have no atonement and we have no right to come before God in prayer. And without the Holy Spirit, we have no incense to come before God 
and offer our prayers to Him. So Old Testament examples now. In Luke chapter 1, now I realize you're saying this is New Testament. This is before Jesus was born. This is the Old Testament way of doing things. Verse number 9, According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went up into the temple of the Lord. So Zacharias, this is John the Baptist's father, he was a priest, and it was his job uh, morning and evening to go down to the temple and to put incense on that altar of incense. And that smoke goes up and goes back behind the veil where the holy place is. And so verse number 10, And the whole multitude of people were without at the time of incense. So what are they doing? They, they were praying without. So they, they had an understanding that as that incense is going up before God, we can gather here and pray, and our prayers, though we're filthy and defiled by sin, our prayers can mingle with that incense, come up before God, and be acceptable to Him. You see, and let's look in another place or two before we go too far. In Ezra, chapter number 9, verse 5, And at the evening sacrifice I arose up from my heaviness, and having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread my hands unto the Lord my God. So the evening sacrifice they had, and I'm sorry if I said this out of order, but they had a morning and an evening sacrifice. They killed and burned every day. At the time of that sacrifice... Incense was offered in the temple. The lamps were seen to and taken care of. And so here in Ezra, at the time of the evening sacrifice, when the incense would be going up, and when there's a body on the altar that's been killed, representative of my sin, and that animal dying in my place, it was at that time Ezra saw fit to pray unto God. In 1 Kings chapter 18... There is Elijah, and he's on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, and they've all day cried unto Baal to send fire down and take up this offering. And they finally quit and give up. And the Bible says these words in verse 36, And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, So even Elijah the prophet... Now, it's not coincidence. This is not a stroke of luck that this just happened to be this way. But God's... It's hidden. It's not in plain view. But God's saying to to me, Elijah was unable to come before God except for at the time of sacrifice and incense going up. That Ezra, who was a man that was rebuilding the temple by the direction of God Almighty, Ezra knew that there was a time for him to pray. And it was when there was a sacrifice on the fire and the smoke was going up before God. And in Revelation 5, we all know this verse most likely. Verse 8, When he had taken the book, so here's the Lamb of God, that's taken the book that was sealed out of the hands of him that sat upon the throne. The four beasts, the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, 
which are the prayers of the saints. So here is that incense, a, a picture of that incense in the Old Testament, in the New and in Revelation. It's revealed to be the prayers of the saints that's going up before God. So all through the book then, there is a connection with prayer and a sacrifice and incense. And it was known obviously in Luke, those people had enough sense to know that their only hope of getting a prayer before God was that the priest was in there doing his work and that incense that God prescribed was going up before him. Because we can't get a prayer through without something there to mingle with our wickedness. But ain't it something today that man thinks God's going to hear every prayer and accept everything that I want and answer my every desire that I lay before Him. That's not the God that the Bible reveals. That's a God of the imagination of man. The only way the church can come together and pray, it's not through I've been a good boy this week, but I beseech you to pray through the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Holy Spirit of God. There is our evening sacrifice. Not to be slayed every evening. And I don't have to wait till 6 o'clock till the priest is killing him to pray. He's already been offered once for the perfect removal of my sins forever. And I don't have to wait on Zacharias to burn incense on the altar of incense before I can pray to God at a certain time every day. But by the Holy Spirit of God that indwells us Our prayers are carried up before God. And you see, through blood and through the Spirit, our prayers are made acceptable to God in Jesus. So Paul says, take advantage of the means that's been provided you and strive together with me. So Paul is actively praying to this end. And he's saying, I want you to strive together with me with me in prayer. Well, what's the point of prayer? I, I know that, that sounds bad and we spit that out the minute I say that. But the truth is we live just like that because there's no time to pray in our life. There's no time made. It's not important enough to push something aside for a few minutes, for ten minutes, and to try to pray unto God. And so we're saying, well, what really, what's the point of that? And the New Testament says, strive together in your prayers to God for me. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse 11, ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by many persons, thanks may be given by many, on our behalf. Notice how that reads. It's easy to miss what he's really saying in 2 Corinthians. They are helping together in prayer for Paul. That for the gift bestowed upon us, Paul was made the minister and the apostle to the Gentiles. And God God regenerated him and God provided him 
the strength, the understanding, the wisdom, and the will to go out and preach this gospel. And do you know what these people at Corinth are doing? Now they heard the gospel through Paul. The, the much of the church there, they were founded upon the preaching of the gospel of Paul who was going out to Gentiles now, to people that had no place in the Old Testament. Here comes this man preaching them the gospel that brings them to faith. So they're getting down on their knees and they're saying, God, I thank you that you sent Paul our way and that you brought us the gospel and that you saved us through his ministry. See, listen to what he's saying. For the gift bestowed upon us that thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Paul's thanks God. God, I thank you for the ministry, for the salvation, and for the work that you've done in me. And Paul says, that's not enough that I'm thankful. But the church ought to be thankful for the work of God in our midst. I believe, I believe right there, right there's the number one purpose in prayer, that I be thankful and recognize God for all that He's done. That I thank Him for His provision, naturally speaking, I, I believe that's important. But I tell you way far beyond that, the provision of His Son, a sacrifice, the Spirit as our guide, the work that He's done in us, and continues to do that I forever be grateful unto God. How many times ought I to thank Him for the work that He's done for me? So thankfulness. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul asked the church at Ephesus, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the ministry, the mystery of the gospel. So Paul says, Pray for me that God give me a mouth that I might be able to speak this mystery and make it open and bare to the people to the best of my ability. Pray for me to that end. Now, what, what, what are we doing when we pray? We're not telling God. But in, in Paul requesting that, Paul recognizes that I don't have the ability to properly do this work. Would you say that's true? He's saying, I, I can't do this, but let's pray to God who has the ability and the means and can give that ability to me. So not only is there thankfulness, but there's recognition of me on the bottom looking to God in need of His help. Paul says, I'm in need of God's help. And he readily admits that in requests for prayer. When we have a, a, an altar of prayer and we ask for requests, well, what are you mentioning? When you raise your hand, what are you raising your hand for? Well, I've, I've got this object, whether it's somebody or uh, something in our lives, I've got this object that needs the Lord's help. This is something only the Lord can do. And we need Him to be able to do that work. And we want to petition God 
to do this for us. So we're looking to one with power. We're recognizing first His provision and we're thanking Him for that. And then we're looking to one that has power to do that, that we ask Him of, and that that we're unable to do. Recognizing our helplessness in our state. Last place in 2 Thessalonians 3. And I'm not looking at every place where Paul asks or mentions prayer. Just a few places. You can dig and find much more. There's much more in the Word of God than what we can cover in an hour's time with you here. 2 Thessalonians 3.1 Finally, brethren, pray for us that the Word of the Lord might have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Paul's going to go preach, but I've got no ability that it run free course in the lives of those that hear it. But Paul says pray that God grant it to have free course among the ears of these people just as it does with you. Have you ever prayed that? God open their eyes like you open mine. Run them into a wall like you ran me into a wall. And I'm not talking naturally in a vehicle. I'm talking in my spiritual life. I came to a place of conviction that I couldn't get over. God did that. And so we pray, God, as the Word of God has had free course in me, let it have free course in their life and overcome them as well. So strive together with me in prayers that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem might be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. That was verse 31 and 32. So he's got three objects that he wants them to strive in prayer for. First, that Paul would be delivered from the non-believers. We talked last week, did that happen? It did not happen. Paul carries this offering to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he's arrested. And from there, he's carried to Rome. In prison. In chains. And so, God did not answer that request. But it was Paul's request that it be that way. Now, is that wrong? In Matthew 24, I realize there's, there is allusions to the end of the world. But a lot of that discourse was looking at the 70 A.D. destruction of Jerusalem. That destruction was coming. God was going to level the city. He was going to level the temple. And He was going to bring an end to that religion and ceremonies that Christ had ended already 40 years prior. God was going to end it. But in that discourse, He's warning the Christians and those that would believe His Word, keep your eye out. And when you see this coming, flee out of the city. But in it he says, just pray that your flight be not in winter. Now, they're going to be running out of the city. They're going to lose everything they got in there. The city's going to be burned and destroyed. And Jesus says, pray to God that in this judgment He would give you a little ease on that. And it wouldn't be in the winter. And it wouldn't be at night. So that when you flee, it would be easier for you. You see that? 
So no, there's, there's nothing wrong with praying and petitioning God. As long as I recognize this, He's the sovereign. He's the supreme authority. And as the Lord Jesus said, Lord, if there be any way possible, let this cup pass for me. But if not, Thy will be done. If this is what you've determined and it's unchangeable, then Your will be done and may we receive the grace and strength to carry on through that. And yet petition is made that I may be delivered. In 2 Thessalonians 3.2 And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. So Paul's petitioning, remember the verse we just read, 2 Thessalonians 3.1 that the word of the Lord have free course. And in the second verse, that we may be delivered from ungodly and wicked men. You know what there was pursuing Paul all the time? There was somebody that wanted him dead, following him everywhere that he went. And also there were those following him in every city. He would go to a place, preach the gospel, establish a church, and Paul would go on to another city, and here had come some wolf in sheep's clothing in to try to turn them back to Judaism and to religion, and to the works of the flesh. Paul says, pray that I'd be delivered from these wicked men that desire to see me hurt and wounded. I'm going to say one thing, and we'll just leave it at that. That we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. So when you hear all men... That does not mean all and every individual. Do you see how that he says that here? But he's talking about those that have not faith. And if you believe this scripture in 2 Thessalonians 3.2, I believe you could recognize that it's not as commonly or popularly said that God give everybody when they were born a little measure of faith, and it's up to you what you do with that. Well, Paul says here that all men have not. They do not have in their possession faith. Who has faith? Those that God gave faith. That's the truth. So, uh, strive together that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. So I've got this collection. I'm going to come. Pray that the church down there would accept that and that they would be appreciative of the Gentiles who in, now in their mind, if a publican was a second-class citizen and they were, they were the lowest in the eyes of the Jew, the publican was the lowest of the low. The Gentile was less than that. That's what they thought of the Gentiles by tradition and by the passing down from man. Paul says, pray that God would open their eyes, that they would accept, well received or approved, that they would recognize... So remember, Paul recognizes that just bringing a big pile of money to them, that's not going to do the job. But we're praying that God would be working behind all of this 
and that they would accept it and recognize that God's done a work in them and they're equal with us. So see, we're praying to God now. I don't think, I don't think you'd have to pray. God let these poor people that ain't got nothing and they're wondering what they're going to eat for supper, let them accept this big pot of money I'm going to give to them. No, they'll take the money, wouldn't you say? But we're praying that God work and open their mind and hearts to see what God's doing in the Gentile world. That the church at Jerusalem recognize the Gentiles as equals with them in the kingdom of God. I can't stress enough how foreign that is to the mind of people in this day that this was written. May be accepted of the saints that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and may be with you, be refreshed. So he's praying now, also pray that I get to come to you. So recognizing this, Paul was... Paul was, I believe, the chiefest of the apostles. He outlabored them all by the Word of God. He was a man that God revealed possibly the most of the hidden Scriptures to and let Him write that to us. I realize that's a lot of speculation. A lot of them we don't have any history on. A lot of the apostles. And yet Paul here, a man of God, but... And he wants to go to Spain. And do you know why he wants to go there? Not to see the ocean. Not to invest money in a a business down there that's doing real good. But Paul's wanting to go to Spain that the gospel would reach even to there. So he's he's a good man. He's the right man. He's got a, a right intention and desire. But Paul again recognizes that he is not sovereign. He says, pray that God would bring me to you though I intend on coming. Though that's my my fullest desire to be there with you, pray to the end that God would let me be there. James puts it this way in a far more well-known scripture. 4.15 in the book of James. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. So what's James saying? What you need to learn is, and God help me to learn it, that I'm not going to do as I see fit. And I need to recognize that if I get to do it tomorrow, it's because the Lord allowed and give the ability to do that tomorrow. James says, don't say you're going here next week, but say rather, Lord willing, we'll be there next week. I put my boys in the bed, and you know, maybe it's just vain repetitions, but I I need it in my mind. They need it in theirs. I say, boys, Lord willing, I'll see you in the morning. Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow night. You recognize... I intend on seeing you. My desire is to see you. But if I don't get to see you tomorrow, it was the Lord's will. Don't despair. He's in control. He, that's what we've got to recognize. God is the sovereign and in control of all things. And if we're going to do anything, it's by the Lord's will. Paul says, pray that the Lord allow 
for me to come to you with joy. Now Paul's going to go to Rome. He's going to spend at least two years there in his own hired half. People are able to come and hear him preach and he's able to get the Word of God out to Rome that even people in Caesar's house are going to be saved and believed. But he is not going the way that Paul wants to go. Paul's wanting to pack up and go to Spain and stop at Rome on the way through. Instead, Paul's going to go in a prisoner ship in chains bound to Rome. So, does Paul always get what Paul asks for? Paul does not always get what Paul asks for. I mentioned it last week. I think it fits beautifully in right here. David, the king, one day, he's sitting there in his house that he's spent so much time and effort and money in the building and he's looking around and and he thinks about the the tabernacle. That was the tent now. And he says, you know, I've got this great house and the Word of God, the the tabernacle, it's just a tent. I think I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan says, go ahead, David. you're, You're God's king. You're God's man. You've got a right desire. You go ahead and build that. So maybe they talk about it for a minute. And Nathan goes down the road. And God stops Nathan down the road and says, Nathan, you're going to have to go back and tell David that he can't build me a house. It's a good thing that you desire, but you can't build it. And so even even in the rightest circumstance, it's not my will that's done. You see that God is in control and He's leading and guiding. And I believe Paul was tickled, slapped to death with the time and opportunity that God gave him at Rome. And Paul was not sinning in the least bit. Paul's got no mind to the future and what he's wanting is the very best. That's the way we all are. We want the very best. We want the least amount of trouble and the least amount of suffering and the best circumstance. And we pray that way. But no, it it doesn't always come that way. And so in the close, now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So the God of peace. And if I go back and try to find every one of those references, I didn't write them down. And honest to goodness, I just thought of it as I read that verse. But another description in this chapter here, 15, of what God is. And He is a God of peace towards them that He's delivered. You know, earlier in Romans, He's going to say, if if God, when we were sinners, if He gave His Son for our sins, and if when we were wicked, and really even before that, if before the foundation of the world... God saw us, God loved us, God elected us, God predestined us, God called us, God justified us, and God glorified us, and He did all of that without me participating in it. Then what do I have to fear with this God? i tell you what He is. He's a God of peace. Have you ever been in a situation 
I believe if you've been saved any length of time, something's come up, whether natural or or in the mind or on the job, something's come up that has caused trouble to well up in our heart. And you, you get to a place that you're afraid and you're fearing and you're worrying. I've been there many times. You know what I found? I found that if I can find me a place and begin to pour out my heart to God... I can lay that down and the God of peace can bring peace to my soul. Not that the situation changes. It's not I pray and get up and say, all right now, I'm going to be happy when God changes this, when things get better. But I tell you, in the midst of trouble, God is able to bring that peace upon man. I believe, you know, there they are. They're on the ship in the book of Acts. Paul's being shipped to Rome in the jailhouse boat and there comes the storm and they are in despair of life. Everybody on the ship has given up any hope of surviving this trip. And Paul, after long abstinence, comes out of the belly of the ship and he says, men, now they're not delivered. They're not out of the storm. Things haven't gotten better yet. But Paul comes out and says, Men, you can take ease at this. God has spoken to me and said, Everybody is going to be delivered. Everybody's going to survive. The only thing that's going to perish is the ship. Now, Paul had peace from God before anything got better. How did he receive that? On his knees, seeking after the God of peace. Now to the sinner, to the unbeliever, this is not a God of peace. Is He? He's a God of wrath. He's a God to be feared. He's a God of justice. He's a God that, to the sinner, every sin and disobedience is going to be expected to be fully paid for. But to His children... If God gave His Son that we could be saved, would He not also freely with Him give us all things? He didn't withhold that. Now, you see how easy that Scripture like that's twisted because we're flesh. It's twisted to say, well, I'll pray to God and He's going to give me whatever I want. No, we've already covered that here. That's not what He's giving. The storm storm may, and we'll just say the storm will come. But God has grace. If any of you lack wisdom, when the trial, James chapter 1, when the trials and when the afflictions come, upon your life if you lack wisdom, if you get to a place of despair and you say, God, I don't know what I need to do here. You can come to God who gives to all men liberally. He's a God of peace. He whispers, sweet peace to me. So it's not about the changing things. Paul prayed for a thorn in the flesh that was buffeting him. He prayed three times that God would remove. God, this is hindering my ministry. 
This is hindering my ability to preach the gospel. This is continually troubling me. If you remove this, things will be better and I'll be able to preach. You know what God said. God did not take that away. But God said as Diane said, my grace is sufficient for thee. You know, I believe here's the picture. If everybody looks at Paul and says, now there is a smart, educated, well-spoken, powerful man. There's a man that comes and, and he, is, he is just the best of the best. And if that man preaches and somebody gets saved, they're going to say, boy, look at how Paul was able to get that done. You see that? But if people look at Paul and say, what a weak and feeble and foolish. And I mean, really, he's a, he's a pitiful man. He's bowed over, probably been beaten half to death through his life, endured all of those afflictions. He's going hungry a lot of times. He's pitiful looking. And they say, that pitiful looking fool of a man. And yet God through him save somebody. You know what people think then? They think, boy, look what God's able to do through this little weak thing. My strength is made perfect in weakness. It's recognized, Paul, when you're weak, it's recognized that it's not you that's doing this work, but I'm getting the recognition. David, when you're a little boy and you're fighting against a nine-foot giant that's a warrior... I'm the one that's getting the glory because it's plainly seen that David does not stand a chance. See, it's the weakness. It's Gideon's 300 against a multitude like grasshoppers that it's recognized this can't be done. And when it gets done, God gets glory. God don't want a bunch of great, wise, mighty, and strong men. God's looking for the weak and the base and the off-scouring of the world. And through that, He's going to perform His work and God's going to get all the glory. So we'll stop there and pick up in chapter 16 next time. Anything on your heart you'd like to say?